Is there anything worse in this world than opening up a loaf of bread to find it has been ravished by mold? Well, yeah, there's actually a lot of things, and in the grand scheme of things, that's an incredibly small inconvenience. But we experience this inconvenience a lot of times in our lives, because mold is bound to happen when you have a baked good like bread. But sometimes we want mold. There are molds that make cheeses, and molds that make soy sauce, and tofu, and tempeh, a lot of delicious products. So where really is the distinction between the good molds and the bad molds? My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I'm a student at the University of Guelph in the Food Science Department trying to get a PhD. And I'm here to tell you that I've mistreated bread in the past. I have been known to microwave a piece of bread long enough so that it turns into quote-unquote toast. So other crimes that you could commit to bread is letting that mold ravish the bread and potentially get onto other items in the fridge. But fear not. Today's episode, we are going to be talking with Kim Acevedo, who knows all about the domestication of different microorganisms. And she's going to talk us through why there are such itty-bitty differences between one mold and the other. One mold that makes your bread turn blue and fuzzy, and one mold that makes delicious things like soy sauce. She's going to talk about what the domestication of microbes means and a whole lot more. But while you're listening, keep in mind that we're both graduate students in our fields and we are still learning. We're students and we don't know everything just yet, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Kim. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Louis? I am doing pretty good over here. Can you do us all a favor for everyone listening? Tell us what your educational history is. Yeah, sure. So before I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is where I'm currently at, I did my undergraduate degree in the Dominican College of Blauvelt, located in New York, where I specialized in biology and got my chemistry minor. Um, I did various internships throughout my four years there, and it spanned ecology, bioinformatics, as well as fossil dating to determine climate change. Um, but one thing that I did that I really loved and I held on to dearly is a fellowship that I did where I did watershed ecology and bacterial and viral source tracking in a creek, which allowed for the growth of my love for microorganisms. Yeah, I guess a love for microorganisms, not maybe your most conventional love. So, so you, you, th this internship it had a lot of words behind it: viral ecology, blah blah blah. Could you, could you back up and explain exactly what that is? Oh yeah, so bacteria. Um, so watershed ecology essentially means ecology focusing on a, a body of water, and so they just deem it watershed ecology. And so what I did was I essentially looked at all the bacteria from collections that I would take and I would look at the viruses within that water and I would try to track it to see where the pollution is occurring. Um, and I would just do that by essentially counting bacteria and the viruses and compare, comparing them to sources that lead and correlate or potentially could correlate to pollution in the creek. Oh, that's super interesting. So you were kind of able to track where pollution was coming from based on where you saw the viruses and the amount of the viruses at given points in this uh, water trail? Yes, right. Including like what I found would also help me um, determine pollution. So if I found a lot of E. coli, that would equate to maybe some fecal matter um, or otherwise known as feces. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Because uh, pollution is not always the same. So I can imagine that like more E. coli probably farm runoff, I'm imagine. Yes, including human pollution. So potentially human feces um, or of that matter. So maybe there was like a sewer leakage, perhaps. You know, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to get too deep into this right now. But you said that you fell in love at this point, And then you mentioned human feces. I'm, where does everything add up? So essentially, I really liked microbiology. And so when I was looking for a graduate program, I just knew that it had to work with some sort of microbe, regardless of the model organism that I chose. All right. So you were just microbe. It was you. You said you wanted a bacteria. You wanted a virus. You wanted a mold. You didn't really care which one, but you were obsessed with little tiny things that you could barely see. Exactly. Things that I would, would cry or a microscope to be able to see. Okay. And what led you to UMass? What what was the big draw? So the big draw for my interest in UMass, of course, was the lab in which I chose, which is the food science department. Um, but I'm in particularly an OEB program, which stands for organismic um, or organisms, evolutionary biology. And so in particularly, I'm in John Gibbons lab, uh, and we focus on the domestication of microbes. So you you joined John Gibbons lab because you really like the lab itself. So what do you do in this lab? So in this lab, I study microbes, um, but more specifically, uh, a lot of people don't really know about domestication in general. A lot of people know about domestication in plants and animals, right? When I think of domestication, that's what I thought of. I thought of a tomato becoming larger and sweeter and corn being larger and um, yielding more. Uh, corn kernels, um, but no one really knows about the domestication of microbes. And microbes, of course, are things that we can't see with the naked eye. And so um, there is not much knowledge known about domestication of microbes. And microbe currently is what is driving um, industrialization, and particularly agriculture industry. So um, when we're we're talking about food production and and um, food preservation, etc. Um, so I was drawn to this lab to figure out exactly what can I increase or hopefully increase the knowledge of domestication of microbes and potentially and hopefully determine a model organism when we're studying these things um, so that we know exactly what go-to organism should we study when we're thinking of domestication. All right, so domestication, as a lot of people probably understand it, is uh, easy to understand in the concept of, like, dogs. Right. Right, yeah, so so you have a lot of dogs, and there's a whole bunch of breeds. You have your German Shepherds all the way down to your Chihuahuas. And they're still dogs, but they have been slightly changed genetically over years and years and years and years and years. Yes, and some have been selected for various different things, like tail size, tail curl, tail length, um, snout, ears, etc. Yeah, and same thing with microbes. Now, of course, we're not looking to make the cutest, most cuddliest microbes out there. Um, but the, the microbes, as you said, they're industrialized and they do jobs. So what are we domesticating in a microbe? So... The hopes that we're we're hoping to find or, fig or shed light on in our lab is to see exactly what was selected for 
for these microbes. So we know that there's a wild type, which all that means is one that we would find in the wild. Um, and then there's one that's in the laboratory and that we would call more domesticated. And that's more one that we manipulate for purposes that we may need. And so when you think of a bacteria or a microbe, you think of something bad and you think of uh, an outcome or a secretion that it can have that would be pathogenic or harmful to humans. And so the idea in our lab is to figure out, well, what were things selected for to perhaps silence these pathogenic traits or perhaps delete these pathogenic traits? In turn, we're creating less diversity, but now we're essentially asking these, these microbes to do what we want for things that we want, such as um, aroma, uh, creating an aroma for our food or making it more savory. So the one in particular that I study is responsible for fermenting things like soy sauce, miso, and sake. And that's um, a genus Aspergillus that I study. Um, and I focus on two species within that genus. So you brought up a really interesting point that I'd like to hit on a little bit. You said that we think of microbes as bad. And, and bad sometimes means that they're going to make you sick. And uh, things that make us sick are typically called pathogens. Right. So you said that we can breed bacteria to be non-pathogenic. So tell me a little bit more. Why, why do we want to breed them to be non-pathogenic? Why can't we just find a different bacteria? So there are good properties that these fungi or bacteria can have. And when we think of bacteria, I think of antibiotics. And so sometimes there's no genetic manipulation that has to be done. They're just already they have these characteristics and that's most likely for survival instincts in terms of they're not the only ones living in that particular area. There's m billions of different organisms that are also microscopic in which they have to fight for their life essentially for resources and to outcompete. And so those in particular, maybe perhaps we don't need to do anything with them because if you have a fungal infection, that that bacteria may have an antifungal and that's probably something that you would wanna take. But in particular, this fungi that I'm talking about, um, the bad is essentially to cause the surrounding organisms to die, but those surrounding organisms can harm a human. And so things that we would want to see is um, specifically, these are things called secondary metabolites that they secrete. Um, and these are things that we keep an eye on when determining whether or not a species within this genus is domesticated from another species. Okay, so we got these bacteria, mold, and yeast, and they create some good things, and they create some bad things. Um, and sometimes we can weaponize these bad things to prevent us from getting sick from the surrounding stuff. So they're really just competing to survive, and we get that side benefit of them killing off any bacteria that might cause us harm. Right. They're not really thinking about the consequences of their actions. They're just more trying to survive and reproduce to spread um, their offspring and to reproduce, essentially. Yeah, that's the goal, right? Uh, I mean, life is driven by reproduction. So it's not necessarily that they're like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, produce this thing to kill the other bacteria because I'm some malicious monster. They're doing it because they want to survive. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. So now let's go back to this Aspergillus. Uh, Aspergillus, what was it called? Aspergillus is the genus that I study. Okay, and then there was the species, was Orizae, or what was it? Yes, yeah, so there's two species that are more commonly studied, and they're Aspergillus orizae and Aspergillus um, flavus. And so the second part of that name is the species part. 
Okay, so we have uh, these two different species. So uh, keep in mind when we're talking about domestication, they come from the same sort of parent type, but they're a little bit different uh, than each other. And, and sometimes they're significantly different from each other. What can you say about the difference between the two of them? So in particular, Aspergillus arisi um, tends, is a, is we think is putative domestication from Aspergillus flavus. But one main difference is amongst the two in their metabolic abilities, as well as the production of secondary metabolites. Um, the difference is most notable in the exploitation of Aspergillus arisi. It has the ability to break down complex carbohydrates into simpler components. Um, and this has been done for thousands of years. And as I mentioned earlier, this is to produce things like sake, soy sauce, and miso from starch-enriched grains, so like rice. While um, the other species, Aspergillus flavus, is more of a wild fungus, so one that you would see out in the wild and outside, you're breathing it every single day. In fact, this is the mold that you see when your bread goes bad. Um, and it's an opportunistic plant and animal pathogen. It produces aflatoxin, which is one of those secondary metabolites that I mentioned, which are poisonous to humans, um, as well as crops. So it infects things like corn and rice grains. Yes, that so that's a really good point, is that, that this Aspergillus flavus, we probably know him the best. He's probably the most, the most, uh, the mold that we're most familiar with because we see it on bread, correct? Yes. Yeah, and sometimes it gets a little blue and it gets a little fuzzy and it's kind of circular and it's a little bit gross. Yep, that's exactly what we love to see in the lab. Well, okay, what you love to see in the lab is not what we like to see on our loaves of bread. Uh, but, but you also mentioned that it is on crops, too. Yes, essentially it just infects it to the point where it can't be sold, and so they just lose the crops. Oh, so they they have to just, like, throw it completely away. They can't do anything about that crop. They have to just scrap it. Right. They can't, they can't just put some Windex on it and call it a day. <laughs> no, All they right. cannot. Similar All to right. how we scrap our bread, that's what they do. That's a good point, and depending on how, you know, disgusting of a person you are, you eat around it, but you probably should just throw it away. Exactly. It's a personal choice, you know, it's got a certain flavor. Don't, okay, all right, and I'll, I'll <laughs> let disclaimer on the radio, I did not tell anyone to eat moldy bread. <laughs> okay, so, uh, this Aspergillus flavus, he's growing everywhere, and sometimes I even know that that, that that mold can, like, travel to other things in your fridge. I um, mean, you said it's opportunistic kind of mold. It wants to grow. That's its main mission. Can you tell us a little bit more? Um, yeah, so it essentially feeds on um, starchy, enriched things. And so uh, it's also a spore former. So it's essentially comparable to COVID, but it is not a virus at all. And what I mean by that is it's airborne, so it's in the air. You're always breathing it. So by just breathing in and out, you're helping it spread its spores. And spores are just something that we call their gametes. And so this is how they sexually reproduce. And some of them can sexually reproduce, while some others don't really need a partner and they can asexually reproduce. And so that's how it's easily spreadable. And um, really the only way to eliminate that is like through alcohol and disinfectants like that oh wow so i had no idea that it was like an aerosol you're you're breathing in the fumes well i guess not the fumes you're you're breathing in the offspring of these molds 
So, so, so you're breathing them in, but not necessarily all of them are airborne, right? Yes, and you're always breathing them. In fact, they're found in the dirt and they're found in the water. And so this is everywhere. Am I breathing in Aspergillus Flavus right now? Absolutely. <gasps> wow. <laughs> what an opportunistic mold. Get out of my nose. <laughs> yes. And the only reason why you're not experiencing any um, illnesses or any discomfort, I should say, is because you're relatively healthy. And so these are opportunistic also for humans in the way that they infect and they are responsible for the losses of many lives annually um, due to an infection called aspergillosis, where it um, infects immunocompromised patients. So these are patients who have their immuno, uh, immune system compromised um, and it infects the lungs. Oh, ah, that sounds terrible. And especially since you're breathing it in, it gets into those lungs really easily, doesn't it? Right, right. And typically these patients are already sick with other things. And so um, how do we combat now more than one illness at a time? Ooh, that sounds like a rough time. Especially when it's respiratory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let, let's put a little bit of uh, application of our newly gained knowledge right off the bat. And, and tell me if I'm wrong. This is just my guess. I got some moldy bread in the fridge, and I have some rice in the fridge. Would it be best if I kept that moldy bread contained in a plastic bag where air can't escape? Would that help me prevent that mold from getting onto my rice? It would, but even simply opening the bag and placing that in a bag would be enough to have the mold spread onto your rice within a matter of days. Wow. Oh, wow. So it's it's really good at doing this. Yes. <laughs> okay, so that that's good to know. So let's try in the future to keep everything kind of contained and separated. And when you see the mold through the plastic bag, don't open it up to touch the mold. Throw the bread away. Yes, yes. Well, that, that's honestly, like, you've, you've already changed my life, and we've only been talking for a few minutes now. <laughs> I don't know about changing my life, but yeah, I'm being a little dramatic. Either way, let's go back to that Orizai. I'm never going to be able to say this right. How do you pronounce it again? Orizai. I was the same way. Orizai. Well, gosh, you study it. You better learn it eventually. I just have to, you know, talk through this interview. <laughs> so, okay, this Orizai uh he makes uh soy i keep on gendering him for some reason it makes <laughs> <laughs> it makes soy sauce and a lot of other uh you said asian cuisine items what were they could you list those again yes so it's responsible for fermenting things like soy sauce miso and sake okay so those are the big ones that are uh very popular in a lot of asian cuisines and the one thing that i found that was super interesting that you said was that this has been done for thousands of years Yes, thousands of years. In fact, um, this is one of the oldest things that we know regarding food cuisine. And so how is it that these people knew um, in terms of selecting which one, bad versus good, how do you know which one to select in terms of when you're trying to ferment um, soy or when you're trying to ferment rice? Uh, how is it that you knew to choose the good um, versus the bad. Uh, so the bad uh, clearly causes harm to humans, causes harm to agricultural industry, and I can assume would taste horrible and the aroma would be um, horrendous, while the good is delicious, savory, smells good, and does not harm um, the, anyone. In fact, it's harmless. 
Okay, yeah, obviously there's the good ones and there's the bad ones. And if they're doing this sort of wild-type fermentation, just kind of using the bacteria from uh, the environment, there's definitely a potential risk that they're going to get some of the bad bacteria. Exactly. So over time, we're talking, you know, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmas of China— they made a batch of soy sauce and it was delicious. And then they said, all right, I want to make some more. So they want to pick the good bacteria. So this is domestication in a nutshell, isn't it? Exactly. And the idea is that they essentially started with a horrible batch and they kept remaking these batches and hoping that they're selecting for the better ones. And in turn, after millennia and thousands of years, they finally got a good batch. And now we're trying to find out, well, what made this batch good genetically? What made this batch good? Um, and that goes back to the fact that microbes, we think, domesticate through a process of um, metabolic pathways, whereas we know animals and plants, they go through domestication through developmental. So that just means that plants and animals are more like bigger or smaller in terms of like size, things that you can see. Um, and they go through that kind of domestication, whereas microbes go through domestication that no one can see. Um, I know that microbes are not visible to the naked eye, but if we could even see it, it we still wouldn't be able to see domestication because this is something that happens develop, uh, metabotic, me metabolically. So this is something in their genetics um, that is causing this difference or divergence in lineage. Oh, super awesome. I really, I really want to get down to the meat of this. So if we compared it to that dog, you know, the dog has a longer tail or a shorter tail, but these microbes, it's not that they become more circular or more oval-like or become like little sticks. They're just different by how they eat and what they produce when they eat. Exactly. So when we're talking about metabolites, um, there are two different types. There's a primary and a secondary. And to keep it short and simple, the primary is something that's required. So you think of oxygen, you think of hydrogen. These are things that are required for it to live. Um, but when we think of secondary metabolites, they're specialized metabolites or toxins. Um, and they're secondary products or natural products or organic compounds that are produced by bacteria, fungi, or plants. And these are not necessary for it to survive. However, if you can think of it, um, an analogy I like to use is it's similar to like a fart in a human. You don't necessarily need it to survive to release that gas, but you do it. And in turn, anything around you is kind of uh, scared or they, they leave, right? They, um, and that's kind of a secondary metabolite. It's used for the surrounding organisms to essentially die and so that it can outcompete other organisms. And so while it's not needed to survive, um, if it didn't have it, perhaps the abundance and the adaptations that it would have had would be very different. So, so what you're saying is that our our farting is more or less like a defense mechanism for us? Um, well, so I'm using it as that kind of analogy, but in terms of humans, a fart is essentially um, gas buildup from microbes in our gut, and it's a way of us releasing the gas that the microbes are releasing in our gut. So essentially, okay. we're not the ones releasing it. Yeah. So the, the bacteria in our gut, their job is not meant to make gas. That's a side product. Right, a side product of essentially them eating. Yes, okay, that makes a lot of sense now. So those those the bacteria, their main job is to eat all of those undigested sugars in our colon. That helps us, you know, get healthy and whatever. Um, and then on the side, they also produce gas, and we get rid of that gas. So our, our, our flatulence is a secondary metabolite. 
Right. And while um, the absence of the secondary metabolite does not result in the immediate death of the organism, but it does um, in a long, it does cause long-term impairment of the organism's survivability. Um, and so while it doesn't immediately harm the organisms, um, in a long term, it will. Okay, so super interesting. This secondary metabolite is pretty important uh, in the in the long span survival of the bacteria. So uh, although we might not like it, we need to have this gas production. Otherwise, we are going to have no bacteria in our gut, which is going to be bad for a lot of reasons. Right. And so again, it just it's important functions such as protection, competition, and it takes... It's related to species interactions, but are not necessary for survival. Okay. So you said that uh, the primary metabolite, super important, they need this to survive. And then that secondary metabolite is that little special characteristic that might be more or less unique to a group of bacteria. Right. When you think of primary, you think of things that are required for growth and reproduction. Okay, so you're able to tell the difference, or at least the evolution of bacteria based on these secondary metabolites. Is that correct? Yes, and that's what we're hoping to shed light on. Okay, so why is that uh, something that you're able to do? Why are why are bacteria and mold and yeast and all that stuff? Why are they so different based on their secondary metabolite? So we're not quite sure what causes this um, off switch of these genes or perhaps even complete deletions. Um, we just think that perhaps they were selected for, for these um, foods and the fermentation of these foods. But in terms of how we actually do this, essentially we just put one on top of the other in terms of comparison. So essentially if you're looking at like two different types of coins, you're, you have them one next to each other. And essentially that's what we're doing, but with genomics and it's called comparative genomics. And so we're just comparing these two species. Um, we have a, a, a certain amount of one species, and so that we call that one population, and we have a certain amount of the others. And essentially, we're just comparing them one to the other to see what's in one and what's in the other, and what makes them so different and why, and where can we see that within the genetic makeup, so within the DNA of these fungi. Yeah, so this is super cool. Uh, modern technology has allowed us to be able to really compare all the way down to the, the DNA of these uh, little microbiotic organisms. And that's how we can tell that they're different rather than looking how long or short their tail is. Exactly. So most of my studies and most of my time is looking at the their nucleic acid makeup and comparing um, what makes them different from each other. Right. And those nucleic acids are sort of like the code. You know, whenever you hear about your genome and your code, it's just really a, a specific combination of nucleic acids that builds up this very specific uh, property of yourself. Exactly. And even one difference, even one difference in that code can cause someone, instead of being a Kim, uh, to be a whole different person, perhaps maybe Emily. Um, and so these differences actually cause can cause catastrophic differences and changes, um, resulting in essentially a divergence in lineage and causing a, a, a speciation difference or a divergence in the speciation. Oh, wow. So just one little amino acid, not my bad, one little nucleic acid can cause the difference between uh, humongous uh, changes in species. I didn't know that it was uh, possible to be that small of a difference. 
Well, when you're a small organism, anything can create a catastrophic change. And that's something that we're uh, slowly seeing. Um, and that's where I go back and say that we don't really know anything about domestication in microbes, but we're learning that something as small as a deletion can perhaps cause uh, a secondary metabolite to not be produced, right? So if you're missing your shoes, you can't leave the house. And so uh, if there's one thing missing, um, this fart, for instance, can't be released. Um, and that's what we're trying to, to hone in on. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I had no idea that uh, all of these factors can sometimes be determined by such small changes. Right. And that's that's what's so cool. All right. So as you do this work, you look at uh, the differences between these uh, bacteria, yeast and molds as a matter of time as they're being domesticated. Are you finding interesting things? Well, like what? Why? So as of right now, because I'm currently a second year, what I am seeing is I study two different species. Um, so the ones that I've been talking about are actually very similar to the ones that I study. In fact, we think that they're um, almost the same, just with different names and used for different purposes. But the reason why I talk about uh, Flavus enterizae is because we know a lot about them. Those have been mostly studied in terms of domestication for microbes and particularly Asian fermented foods. Um, but the ones that I study in particular, they ferment more soy as opposed to rice. So Arise ferments rice, but mine is called Soji and it ferments soy. And so what I'm trying to determine is whether or not my two species of interest uh, are similar to the ones that I mentioned earlier. So they have this similar pattern of one is good, one is bad, one smells great, one smells bad, one makes people sick, one doesn't. And so I'm trying to determine, well, hey, uh, is this the same pattern as we saw in these other species within the genus? We don't really know about it because, of course, um, the other ones that I mentioned happen to grow better and they're just easier to work with. But I'm just trying to see if perhaps I can find the same pattern in these two different species, as I've mentioned earlier. So you're kind of like trying to build out the family tree of these organisms. Exactly. All right. So why bother? Well, primarily because consumer interest in fermented foods have increased dramatically in recent years. Um, the genomic or essentially uh, the, the gene, the genetic data that we have and the, and the phenotypic data, which is essentially like things that you can see the visible data um, obtained, have the potential to shed light on genetic mechanisms that contribute to industrial important traits. So like flavor compounds and bioactive health promoting compounds. Also, research involving food provides a relatable topic um, that facilitates public connection and engagement. Um, and so these are things that we can all relate about. Um, sometimes we can't all talk about uh, heavy intensive sciences, but when it's something that we all relate to, such as our food and things that we need to survive, so how can we better flavor our food, um, that does tend to increase engagement. But all while, um, the reason why we should care is because, uh, I mean, it infects crops, it can harm us, but it can also better our flavor and foods. So interesting. Of course, you know, we want to be able to connect to the science because a lot of times if you're talking like, oh, the DNA code is, you know, uh, I, I don't even remember the nucleic acids. I'm such a chemist <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but if you're like this, uh, this code is, you know, uh, 
AD. Oh God, I can't even remember the form. ATGC. ATG. Thank you. God, this <laughs> is embarrassing. ATGC. CCGG. CCG. No, no, no. We don't. We, we don't care about that. But what what is interesting is what we can do with these guys. So you, your job is not to make a better soy sauce. Your job is to understand why we can make a better soy sauce. Exactly. And how is it that they made a better soy sauce? Interesting. And that's changed over time. Now, this is a a pure guess or a prediction on your point. Would you say that the taste of soy sauce has probably evolved over the millennia that it's existed? That's actually an interesting question. And I'd be really curious to see that. But I would assume based on how they could have done it because they had no no way in terms of technological advances um there's no way that they would have been able to see genetically so i'm assuming that they had to have created that by essentially starting from a bad batch and getting to a better one so it was like a practice makes perfect kind of thing interesting and then i imagine batches from different parts of the world tasted different than other batches exactly yeah, because the 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 microbiome, uh, the bacteria, yeast, and mold in there, they're different. Exactly, different species are different, just like how no human is the same. We're all different in our own ways. Oh, isn't that kind of beautiful in its own sense? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, so could you help us try to wrap things up a little bit? What is the moral of the story? What do we get out of all of this? So the moral of the story is that while there are sometimes things that we cannot see, there are big changes to things that we cannot see. And perhaps we should open our minds and open our ability to think that microbes are our friends and not our foes. And if we enable ourselves or allow ourselves and open ourselves to the ability or the chance that microbes are our friends, we can essentially be unstoppable. Um, we can manipulate our foods to be the next Gordon Ramsay. We can enhance everyone's cuisines, but also lessen harm to others that are being done in terms of the, the health and the lives, but also increase our agricultural crops uh, yield. That is a moral of the story for the ages right there. <laughs> and all of this comes from understanding them better, correct? Yes. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. We can't see microbes. No, we absolutely can't with our uh, naked eyes. But they are doing so many things that affect our everyday lives. Oh, yes. They're what drive antifungals, antibiotics, food industry. um, And... And it's amazing because this, uh, like you mentioned, there's, we cannot see them. And while there are billions and trillions below us right now, or even around us, there's no way we can see it without a microscope. Super interesting. So you are, you know, on the fields, trying to gather some information so that we can really utilize these itty bitty creatures so that we can make our lives better. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing that, first of all. But also, thank you for uh, sitting down for a little bit and and talking to us about this amazing, humongous, unseeable world of the domestication of uh, microbacteria, yeast, and molds. Well, thank you for inviting me. I had so much fun. From listening to our conversation with Kim Acevedo today, you may have learned some life-saving tips. 
Of course, that life would be bred, because we talked all about different aspergillus molds that may potentially spoil your bread a lot quicker. Alongside trying to save every loaf of bread from spoilage, we also tackled the topic of how different mold yeast and bacteria that come from similar families can do incredibly different things. And that's where this whole idea of domestication comes from. We can have bacteria from the same genus be the reason that your bread spoils, but also the reason that we get such delicious food, like soy sauce and tempeh and tofu. And this is why domestication is so important. If you were to compare yourself to your cousins, you might notice that you have a lot of things in common, but at the same time, you are two very distinctly different people. And that's kind of how it works with the domestication of uh, microorganisms. But since this show is called We Know Some Stuff, we have to always admit that we don't know everything. And since we don't know everything, we might say a thing wrong or two while we're talking, so it's about high time that we correct ourselves. So that is where we are going to come in with a quick little fact check for the episode. The first thing I want to note on is the fact that Kim and I, and this is mostly me, use the phrases and the terms bacteria, fungi, yeast, and mold kind of interchangeably, where in reality they're not interchangeable at all. Bacteria and yeast are incredibly different than molds and fungi. A mold or a fungi is a eukaryotic organism, which means that they have multiple cells, whereas bacteria are single-cell organisms. And since they are different like that, it's a whole orders and orders and orders of complication different. In fact, we're a little bit more related to mold than we are bacteria. So if you follow down your family tree really, really, really far and really long ago, you'd find out that you have some moldy cousins down the line. And a quick re-clarification. We said at one point that the aspergillus between the Arisae, which I will still never be able to pronounce correctly, and the Rhizophus and the this and the that different ones, they differ by how they eat, which is not necessarily always true. Now, different aspergillus, they can eat different things, but sometimes they have the same exact diet as each other, which means that their differences come down genetically. So that's in that coding that we talked about. And sometimes that coding is incredibly similar to the point that they have the same exact diet as the other ones, but they're still fundamentally different because that coding is incredibly complex. So sometimes one or two different uh, codes will make significant differences and if they make toxic products delicious products if they smell bad or smell good so we can't necessarily say that their diet is the reason that they're different it's more so their genetics and that sums up our fact check for this episode as we get closer to the holidays it's important to realize that we want to be close with our family but at the same time maybe some family members are a little bit less desirable to have at the holiday table I think uh, Aspergillus Flavus is definitely on that list. So maybe that's a relative that you don't bring to the party this year. Thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.